Romans 4, verse 1 through 12. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this holy and sacred passage that you have been pleased to give to us from the pen of your apostle. And, O oh Lord, as we look at these words, we see the density and profundity of these words. And we look to you, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased to open your word to our hearts. For, O oh Lord, we recognize that without the work of your grace, without the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, there would be no eternal benefit from this exercise. But, Lord, with great anticipation, we come to you this morning. And we expect you, O oh Lord, to meet us at this place, for you have promised and covenanted to do so. So, O oh Lord, we look to you this morning hungry, thirsty, to be taught by you, O Lord, to be instructed by your hand, to be changed by your grace as you teach and apply your word to our hearts. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've been wanting to do a short series on the sacraments for quite some time, and when you're in a... Uh, uh, an exposition as long as Matthew, you know, you, you, you really got to get, you, it takes a long time to get through a book that size. So I, I, I hate to keep interrupting a, an exposition. I, um, I don't like to do that, but uh, the Christmas season gave us opportunity to 
set Matthew aside for a little while. And we have just finished our series, which we entitled Christmas and the Psalms. And I thought this would be a good time to uh, take a few minutes and look at the sacraments. Uh, so this morning, what I'm really going to try to do is just introduce the sacraments. There's a lot that needs to be said that can't be said all in one single uh, message. Uh, many of you have heard me use the analogy of painting a wall. Uh, learning is a lot like painting a wall. Um, those of you who are painters know that uh, you, you have to use multiple coats. Uh, what happens if we try to paint a wall all in one coat? Uh, the paint all runs to the floor, doesn't it? Uh, learning is a lot like that. If we try to get it all at once, a lot of it runs to the floor. <laughs> so this morning, what we're going to really try to do is put a, put a coat of paint on, uh, if you will, just a coat of paint. Uh, we'll return to the subject next week where we'll focus on the Lord's Supper, which is fitting because next week we'll be observing the Lord's Supper. And then uh, three weeks from now, we'll look at covenantal baptism as well. And uh, hopefully each step of the way, uh, we're going to be building a foundation uh, this morning. And then next week, we're going to be framing up some walls. And I hope we have a roof on this structure by three weeks from now. Does that make sense? That's the plan. Now, the focus of our scripture passage this morning is going to be verse 11, uh, which was our scripture memory verse, where we read that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, uh, reading through the Apostle Paul uh, is not always the easiest reading, is it? Uh, even the Apostle Peter says, you know, that Paul, uh, you know, that character writes things that are a little hard to understand. Um, I, I think we would confer with that, wouldn't we? We would agree with that. It's very dense. Uh, what's Paul telling us here? Well, he, he's saying in this passage that Abraham had righteousness, right? We got that. Abraham had righteousness. He's telling us that Abraham had acquired that righteousness, not by working, uh, but by faith. In fact, if we look back to verse 1, Paul asks, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, uh, according to the flesh? You see that question in verse 1 there? What was gained by Abraham according to the flesh? In other words, according to works or according to his personal performance, if you will. Uh, I, I think this is one of the hardest things to get out of our heads, and I don't know that we ever really fully get this out of our heads. We have it in our minds. We're so naturally inclined to believe that if we're really good, uh, then God's going to let us into his kingdom. Uh, if we are really good, God will shower us with his blessings. Uh, if we are really, really good, God will love us. Uh, he will love us thoroughly. And conversely, if we aren't so good, if we're bad, uh, then God will withdraw his love. Uh, sometimes we unfortunately sing, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout. I'm telling you why. God is looking down with a frown. You like that? Can anybody relate with that? Does anybody here this morning think God's frowning at them? It's a pretty serious question, isn't it? 
Now, we've got to be careful here because we don't want to get the idea that God doesn't care how we live. That's an error that we can fall into, and many have fallen into. It's a very popular area, uh, error today. God doesn't care how we live. It is said that uh, we're no longer under the law, and what they conclude by that statement is we're lawless. Uh, that's, not, that's, not even, that's not even close to it. So we have to be careful here to what we're saying. R.C. Sproul used to tell his students that man is very bad and God is very mad. That's easy to remember, isn't it? Man is very bad and God is very mad. And I think we all understand that at a very deep level. But it takes nothing short of a miracle to see God's grace, does it? Unless a miracle takes place in our heart, we don't see God's grace in Christ Jesus. We sing our song. Better watch out, better not cry. That's what we sing. Now, uh, God can be and is very often displeased with the sin of His children. I think we all understand that, right? Um, we can grieve God with the way we behave and the way we think and the, the things that we do. But if we're a true child of God, and we become a true child of God by trusting in Jesus, as we're going to see here from this text, if we're a true, a true son or daughter of God, we need to understand that God never withdraws even an, a, a fraction of His love from us. That's not how He functions. It's hard to get that out of our heads, though, isn't it? Now, um, if we were to look at our context of Romans, you know, namely chapters 1, 2, and 3, we would see pretty easily, and if you've read Romans 1, 2, and 3, uh, what's Paul developing largely in those chapters? Uh, it's the fact that there's no one who does good, is there? There's no one who is righteous. All have uh, fallen away. Uh, there's a lot of really powerful words used there in verses 1, or chapters 1, 2, and 3. And what we conclude from that is even the most righteous of us has nothing, not even one thing to boast about. And it's interesting that in verse 2 of our text, if you look there, Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. So even Abraham, as righteous as Abraham was, when he was told to offer his son Isaac, didn't, didn't withhold even his, his firstborn son from God. He wasn't perfect. Now look at the beauty of verse 3 here. Paul says, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what Scripture passage is... Paul referring to. Notice he says, for what does Scripture say? Okay, what verse? Give me a, give me a book and a, give me a, 
give me a, a chapter and a verse. Okay. The book is Genesis. The chapter is 15. And the verse is 6. Paul is quoting from Genesis 15, 6. Now, it's very common to believe that the Old Testament is all about performance. It's all about works. Very common for people to say, well, you know, the Old Testament was all about works and you got into the kingdom of heaven by working in the Old Testament. But then when that didn't work out, along comes the New Testament. And uh, the New Testament teaches, no, we don't do it by works now. We do it by, we do it by faith. Well, when we look at these passages, we see that silliness. Because as Paul is developing the, the doctrine of what we call justification by faith, he has the book of Genesis in his hand. The first book of the Bible. He has Genesis 15 and verse 6. So Paul is preaching the gospel of grace from Genesis 15. Now, to get the picture of what Paul's doing here, we need to take a look and back up to Genesis 12. And that's why I'd ask you to turn there. If, you, if you'll turn there now and put your, you know, don't lose your spot in Romans 4. We're going to go back and forth here a couple of times in this sermon so your, your bulletins can serve as your bookmarker. But to get the picture of what's going on here, we need to go back to Genesis uh, 12 and verse 1 where we see God calling Abraham. His name's Abram at this point. He's calling Abram and he makes a series of promises to him. And in verse 2, he's promising to make Abram into a great nation. Do you see that in verse 2? And in verse 3, he's promising that all the families of the earth will be, will be blessed through him. Do you see that? Now, we know that Abraham is about 75 years old when he's called. And uh, uh, his wife, Sarah, has never been able to have children. Now, when, when we reach the age of 75 and our spouse hasn't had any children, do we think of that age as a good age to start a family? Uh, not really. Um, um, but this is the promise that's made to it's made to Abraham. He's 75 years old. His wife Sarah is a bit younger than him, but nevertheless, she's never been able to have children. Now, some time passes by, chapters 13, 14. If you'll skip past there with me and turn to Genesis 15 and verse 1. Some time transpires. This promise is made to Abraham. And in Genesis 15 and verse 1, the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision. Do you see that? I want you to see this for yourself. And Abraham says in verse 2, O Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? We can only imagine what's going through Abraham's mind. He's 75 when he gets these promises. Now, much time goes by. Uh, you, you could almost think, now, I'm not getting any younger here. Um, Sarah is not getting any younger here. This would really be a, a trial of faith, wouldn't it? I mean, this would be a tremendous trial of faith. Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? And God points Abraham's attention to the stars. If you look down to verse 5, he basically points Abraham's attention up to the sky, and he, and he says, look at the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your children be. 
Then we are told that Abraham believed the Lord, verse 6. And what? God credited that to him as righteousness. You see that? This is an Old Testament doctrine. It's a doctrine that comes right out of Genesis. Abraham becomes righteous in God's sight by believing the Lord's promise. But after this, God does something that's absolutely unthinkable. In the custom of the ancient peoples of the Near East, God's going to do what's known as cutting a covenant. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that before. Have you ever heard of a cutting a covenant? Okay, we got one. Now, if that question would have been asked in Abraham's time, there wouldn't have been one who hadn't heard of that. Uh, it was a very popular and common uh, ceremony. You'll notice that God instructs Abraham to bring a heifer, a goat, a ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brings all of these animals and cuts all of them, uh, but the birds in half. And then if you look down to verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, and the Electric Lights. You see all that? Just wanted to make sure you were still with me. Now, what's going on here? Uh, again, the ancients would have needed no explanation. A covenant promise is being made. When, a, uh, when we make a promise today, sometimes we'll shake hands, although I think, don't think that's as popular as it once was. That once really meant something in our culture, if you shook hands. Uh, we, we have a contract that we typically do, and I'm not sure in our culture a contract really means much anymore either. Uh, There's a saying that contracts are made to be broken. Uh, it's a terrible travesty that we've come to, but when two or more parties came together in the ancient Near East to make a promise, they would cut a covenant. And what they would do, as we saw here, they, they would take some animals, they would slaughter them, and they would cut their carcasses in half. And then they would make their, their agreement uh, one would promise to do one thing and another would promise to do another thing. And that would be the agreement. And then both parties would pass between the pieces. And in essence, what they would be saying when they passed between the pieces, they would say, listen, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, then I shall be like these carcasses. Mutilated, cut in half, destroyed. It's a pretty serious covenant, isn't it? Now, you wouldn't do this unless you really meant business. Now, notice that Abraham, in our passage, he doesn't pass between the animals. 
Did you notice that? Did you pick up on that? Who passes between the animals? God manifests Himself with that smoking fire pot, if you will, and He passes between the carcasses. And in doing this, He does the unimaginable. What is God doing? Abraham, I understand why you have these questions. You're still without child. You want something that will prove that my promises are good? I'm going to give you something. You see these animals that are cut in two? Abraham, if I fail to make good on my word, Almighty God says, let me be like those carcasses. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? That's an incredible, incredible thing. Now, Abraham believes God. And by believing God, God counts him righteous according to his faith. And this is how we get right with God. This is how they got right with God in the Old Testament. And it's the same way we get right with God in the New Testament. How do you get right with God? Trusting in his promises, all of which are fulfilled perfectly in Christ Jesus. The trust in his promises in this sense is one and the same as trusting in Christ Jesus because all of the promises have their yes in Christ Jesus. So this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus in a saving way, guess what? You're right with God. That perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to your account. What an amazing thing. Now back to Romans 4, but don't lose your place in Genesis because we're going to turn back there one more time. You put your bulletin back in Genesis 15 there. We'll go back to Romans 4 and continue. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8 next where Paul's pointing to David, King David, who captures the blessing of forgiveness so eloquently. Paul's actually quoting from Psalm 32. Uh, he says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. You see that? Righteousness apart from works. Righteousness by faith, apart from personal performance. David so eloquently covers the, the, the blessing in verses 7. Paul's quoting from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Are your lawless deeds forgiven this morning? As you think about the faith God has given you, if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, you can smile because they are. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What a blessing for the Lord did not count our sins against us. And I'm not just talking about past sins. Don't think just about only past sins. You're trusting in Jesus. The sins we're going to commit in the future are all covered too. Don't forget that. That's important. We enter into this blessing not by performance, but by faith. Now, it's a faith that leads to repentance and trust. If we haven't repented of our sins, if we're not living in this lifestyle of repentance, something's wrong. But if, you've, if you're a possessor of true saving faith, you, you're living in a lifestyle of repentance. You've repented of your sins. You hate your sins. As you commit your sins, uh, your, your hatred of them causes you to repent again. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? If you're in a state of saving grace, you should know what I'm talking about here. 
Now, what does all of this have to do with the sacraments? It has everything to do with the sacraments. It's the very foundation of the sacraments. Uh, look with me to verse 9. Paul asks another question. He's kind of catechizing us, isn't he? As we think about our, our study um, that we're going to begin in the, uh, the new year on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Paul's asking questions and he's answering them. He's asking questions and he's answering them. Verse 9, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Paul answers in verse 10, We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Then Paul handles another objection that quickly comes to mind. He says, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, the answer, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now, we see that in our study. At the beginning of our service, we read from Genesis 17. We read about the covenant of circumcision. And we see from Genesis 15 that Abraham has already been declared righteous, right? What came first? God's declaration that Abraham is righteous or circumcision? Abraham believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. And, and uh, he is still uncircumcised at that point, right? Okay, so what was circumcision all about then? Well, in verse 11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, here's the point. Righteousness by faith is the great message of the covenant of grace, right? That's the message of the gospel, isn't it? Righteousness by faith. That we can be righteous by virtue of the performance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? That's the great message of the covenant of grace. That's the great good news that we have. The bad news is we can't be righteous on our own. The bad news is we're unrighteous. The bad news is we're defiled. The bad news is we are sinners to the core. The good news is one has come and lived a perfect life in order to give that life to us, to credit that life to our accounts. That makes sense? That's the covenant of grace. All right? Circumcision was the Old Testament sign and seal of that covenant of grace. That's what Paul's telling us, right? In the Old Testament economy, there were two sacraments. There was circumcision and the Passover, and both were signs and seals of God's covenant of grace. Now, this covenant of grace begins really out of eternity, but in terms of our, our Bibles, it, it begins, it appears in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, where God makes this promise, he says, listen, he's basically promising that Christ will be victorious over the serpent or over the devil. And then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, by the time we get to the end, we see that you know, the book of Revelation graphically depicts uh, Christ's victory over the devil, does it not? And all of the pages in between are the unfolding of the great covenant of grace. It's the unfolding of this great covenant of grace. Now, um, if you would turn back to Genesis 17, this time to Genesis 17 with me, we're going to start putting this all together. Genesis 17. We're going to start looking at verses 4 through 8. 
Hopefully this is going to start coming together for us. If you look at verse 4, Genesis 17 and verse 4, God says, speaking to Abraham, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you. See the word covenant. Remember God cutting the covenant? Remember him going through the, the pieces? Remember all that? My covenant is with you. This great covenant of grace which finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. Lots of kings come from Abraham. The king, with a capital K, comes from Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then God says, verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you through their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. See, there's the sign. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a what? A sign of the covenant between me and you. See, circumcision is a covenant sign. Now, when God makes a covenant, He accompanies that covenant with a sign. Let's think for a moment. Back in the Garden of Eden, God creates Adam and Eve, and we're told that there are these two trees in the garden, right? A lot of times people are always asking, what's up with the trees? There's the tree of life, then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That tree of life is a covenant sign. You know, again, I'm advertising for our, our study in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I mean, we're going to get all this rich teaching this year as we study the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Here's a little preview for you. Uh, question number 12 asks this, and the language, the language might seem, if, if you, as you hear this, it might sound, wow, what's up with that language? But I, as you get in and you start studying this, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll warm up to the language. Um, uh, the question asks, what special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the state where he was created? Okay. The answer, when God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him. A covenant of life. Upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Now, what's going on? God creates Adam and Eve. He makes a covenant with Adam. The covenant is this. Upon perfect obedience, you can live forever. That's the covenant. But if you rebel, then certain death will ensue. And what is the sign of that covenant? It's the tree of life. It's the tree of life. When Adam and Eve rebel against God, what gets taken away? The tree of life. 
if, if, a, if a young couple comes into the church, joins the church formally, and then one party, okay, a married couple, one party of that, company, of that couple begins to go out and grouse around and is unfaithful to that covenant, to that marriage covenant. What should happen? What should the church do about that? The church should call this party to repentance. What happens if that party refuses? Well, then, eventually the church excommunicates that party, right? And when that party is excommunicated, what is taken away? The supper. They no longer have access to the Lord's table. You see, that principle is going on in the garden. God takes the tree of life away. Don't think of the tree of life as having any kind of magical qualities like it's some kind of cosmic fountain of youth or something. Don't think of it that way. The tree is a sign. It has to be taken away from Adam and Eve. If it's not taken away, they may conclude that everything is still okay. We still got access to the tree. We're still good. We're okay. No, you're not okay. There's a mighty angel that's being placed before the tree of life to have been sure that, listen, you've been excommunicated. You're not okay. Repentance must take place. Let me give you another example. In Genesis 6 through 9, God promises to flood and destroy the entire earth, right? He instructs Noah to build an ark. So Noah builds his ark. The flood comes. Uh, Noah and his uh, uh, family get in the ark. God closes the door. He destroys the entire, uh, the entire world. Okay. Afterwards, God makes a covenant with Noah, doesn't he? And what does he promise? He promises never to flood the entire earth again. Now, when he makes that promise, he gives Noah and us a sign. What is the sign? It's that beautiful prism of light. It's the rainbow. And it's a sign to remind God of His promise. It's a sign to remind us of a promise that God has made. Do you ever think of that promise when you see the beauty of the rainbow? God's faithful. He promises never to flood the entire earth again, to destroy it by way of flood. You see, there's the covenant... There's the sign. I have another example. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of what? It's the cup of the new covenant, you see. It's the sign of the new covenant poured out in my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance 
of me. What is Jesus doing in that upper room? He's instituting a covenant sign. He's instituting a sacrament. He's instituting a sacrament that's going to replace the sacrament of Passover. This is really a big deal. For centuries, the Jews have observed the Passover. And it's pretty easy to see the, 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 the symbolism, if you will, of the Lord's Supper. The Passover recognized a lamb, the slaughter of a lamb, and the, the blood on the doorpost, the Lord passed over because of the blood of the lamb. An innocent party goes in place of the guilty party, takes the punishment for sin. Jesus is the Passover lamb with a capital P and a capital L. He's the lamb. And he institutes a covenant sign that we call the Lord's Supper. Now the Old Testament sacrament of circumcision, it has continuity with the New Testament sacrament of baptism. It's a little easier to see the, the, the connection between the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, and the Passover. But Paul tells us in Colossians 2.11 that the baptism, or that baptism, is the circumcision of Christ. And we'll look at more of that in about two weeks. I don't want to get too much into that now. Uh, but for right now, we see that those two sacraments of the Old Testament had given way to the two sacraments that we look at in the New Testament, both instituted by Christ, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of baptism. And we see that these sacraments, if you will, are covenant signs. Same thing as a rainbow, if you will. When we look out and we see that rainbow, what are we reminded of? We're reminded of God's promise. When we look to the bread and we look to the cup, what are we reminded of? Reminded of what God does. One last thing in closing. I've talked a lot about the sign this morning. What about the seal? The Apostle Paul tells us that circumcision was a sign and a seal. We learn from that, that the, that the sacramental signs, or the, the sacraments are signs of the covenant, but they're also seals of the covenant. Now, I'm going to be saying a lot more about that in the next couple of weeks. But for right now, we can answer what's meant by the seal really with one word. It's validation. Validation. The sacrament authenticates the promise. Uh, some of you have seen one of my guitars, that black guitar that I play sometimes. It's a, it's a Gibson Les Paul. Now, on the headstock of that instrument, there's the logo Gibson and written next to it, Les Paul. What does that logo do? That logo is a, is a seal of sorts, if you will. Uh, it shows that this instrument was made by uh, Gibson and that it is a Les Paul model. Uh, in the same way, the seals, they confirm and they authenticate something. Uh, the, the sacraments validate the covenant of grace. And we're going to say much more of that uh, in the next couple of weeks. So now we have the beginning, the foundation upon which to understand the sacraments. They're holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. 
They don't point to what we do, do they? Isn't that something? A lot of times we think they're pointing to us. We think they're all about us. No. They're, they're all about Christ. They're pointing to what God has done. The rainbow doesn't point to us, does it? it points to what God is doing. Tree of life. What did that point to? Pointing to what God is doing. You can have life. Where's it come from? It comes from God. It's a gift. The bread in the cup. What does that point to? It points to Christ. They convert grace to us by ratifying to our hearts and souls the wonderful grace of Christ Jesus. I've given you a lot of information. Let's call in the Lord now. Ask Him to marinate our hearts in it, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that, Lord, You would teach us these things, that, Lord, You'd be pleased to uh, instruct us, that, Lord, we would gain not just a simple understanding, but a thorough understanding of these great things, O Lord, that as we observe the sacraments that, Christ has instituted and commanded us to observe that, Lord, uh, we would uh, come to a greater understanding of what you're doing, that we would come to understand the connections between the sacraments and the promises, the covenantal promises that you have made, that we would come to understand, O Lord, uh, these things. Lord, uh, we recognize that when we hear these things for the first time, they they can be bewildering. And I pray, O Lord, that you'd be pleased to teach us that you'd be pleased, O Lord, to work in our hearts to give us understanding of these things, that you would connect the dots and help us, O Lord, to see the great things that you have done in Christ Jesus. And we pray to these ends in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing our closing song, Christ is Jesus.